All right. Uh, take your copy of God's Word and join me in First Kings. First Kings, back to the Old Testament. Uh, First Kings is a, a very entertaining book. I don't know if anybody uh, read ahead or not, but there's a lot that is going on uh, in, in this book. Actually, this first volume of a book, First and Second Kings, are just two halves of one whole. And uh, there's just, I, I mean, really uh, compelling stories and compelling figures and uh, interesting things going on. It, it makes you, as Pastor and Danny and I were talking about it this week, it makes me wish or wonder why Hollywood uh, hasn't taken this and made a movie out of it. Like it just, it writes itself. It's, it's, uh, it, you just have interesting people and plot lines and uh, drama uh, all over the place. Uh, several years ago, uh, I had some good friends of mine at seminary who really liked to play uh, video games on the Xbox. And one game they really liked to play was uh, the uh, NBA 2K whatever. Uh, there's a new one that comes out every year. And so it's just an NBA. It's a basketball uh, video game. You can create a team or play as a team, play a whole season and that sort of thing. And in the game, if uh, you, ha- you as a player uh, made a, a really cool move with the person you're controlling uh, and like went up to dunk the ball or something but threw it off the back of the rim and totally missed, the commentator on the video game, just to rub it in your face, would say, million dollar move. 10 cent finish. And uh, so as to say, that was a great move and a horrible finish on the play. Kings is kind of like that. There's a million dollar move and a 10 cent finish. Uh, Kings starts off really, really well and ends really, really badly. And we're going to see uh, that shift from things going really, really well to really, really poorly happen very quickly in just about the first half of uh, of First Kings. Uh, let's go ahead and we'll just jump right into it. And depending on the time tonight, if we get through things in a fairly timely fashion, um, I will be happy to afterwards. We haven't done this before, but I will tonight. Uh, sit around and maybe take a couple questions about Kings, if you guys have any questions, and just try to answer those. And you may not have any, and that's okay. But if you have questions, I'll, I'll try to answer them. I won't make any promises, um, but uh, but would, would uh, since we have some uh, flexibility tonight, having taken the Lord's Supper this morning, I'd be happy to do that uh, th- this evening. As we jump right in, we'll start with the uh, author of Kings. Now, I'll, I'll refer to the book as Kings uh, to refer to the whole, both First and Second Kings, because the two go together and were likely written at the same time. There's no stated author of Kings uh, in the Bible. However, there is one uh, ancient Jewish tradition that has Jeremiah, the prophet, who went into exile with Israel as, the, as kind of the final author of Kings. So we don't know who wrote it specifically. Uh, some think maybe Jeremiah. Jeremiah, but there's not a ton of evidence uh, to say that one way or the other. Similar, uh, similarly with the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Not really sure who may have written those. May have been uh, kind of a combined effort uh, by a number of authors over a period of time. The events, uh, thinking of the date of when this book was written, the events of Kings take place from the end of David's reign, King David's reign, until the Babylonian exile, about 970 B.C. to 586 B.C. The date of its writing uh, in its final form cannot be earlier than the 6th century 
B.C. because it details events that happened in 561 B.C. So uh, it, can't have be, it can't have been written uh, prior to um, because uh, to can't have been finished, excuse me, prior to 561 because it's talking about events that happened in 561 B.C. And it's not speaking about those events prophetically. It's intended to be speaking as a historical narrative. It's telling the story of what happened. It is possible that earlier traditions of kings were added to and adapted throughout the period of the exile until the return of the Hebrews to their uh, homeland. To summarize kings, both first and second kings together, I would do it this way. Kings tells the history of Israel's division and decline and ultimate fall away from God in the four centuries after David's reign. Beginning with Solomon's entertainment of worship of false gods in Israel, the nation of Israel will be divided into two, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel in the north, the southern kingdom of Judah in the south. Continual sins of idolatry and perverted worship of the one true God will bring judgment and it will bring the judgment and discipline of God to bear upon his people. This book or these books written to an exiled or post-exilic Israel, Kings reminds the Hebrews not to go back to the slavery of idolatry, but to move forward, to walk forward in faithfulness and repentance and holiness before God. There are really two major themes that uh, kind of rise to the fore as we read through Kings, and they are these, that first, God alone is worthy of worship. We'll find several places that a number of different kings that follow Solomon and, and, and especially into the divided empire uh, include worship of other gods uh, in, the, in the worship of the people of Israel. We see, secondly, that major patterns of sin often begin with small personal transgressions. Major lifelong patterns of sin sometimes or, or, or often begin with small personal transgressions, small, small sins that don't seem like a big deal that very quickly turn into habitual practices that, that last a lifetime and in the case of, of kings for generations. In the scope of redemption history, as we see all that God is doing from the creation of everything until uh, his recreation of everything, the consummation of all things, uh, kings fall squarely uh, in the area around that, uh, that era of, of the fall and what happens afterward uh, with a kind of a longing for redemption. And so if you wanted to mark that on your, uh, on your note sheet tonight, you could circle, you know, maybe the word fall and the arrow that's next to it. In fact, a lot of Old Testament historical narrative, uh, lands kind of right in that space. It's that space in between, um, in between the fall and, and the coming of the Messiah. And there's just a lot of uh, pain of sin and longing for uh, redemption all throughout the Old Testament. Now, as you read Kings on your own, uh, you could probably read First Kings uh, in one sitting in about an hour and a half or so, if you're a, a pretty quick reader. Uh, as I study for this, I do two things. I'll, I'll read it in my Bible while I listen to an audio Bible um, uh, track of it at the same time. And that helps me to you know, just pick up things or, or pay attention to things that, that maybe I would be more prone to miss if I were only listening or only reading. And it took me about an hour and a half or so to get through it this week. And so uh, if you're going to sit down to read it. That's about how long it will take you. Uh, shorter than uh, most movies and definitely shorter than any of the Lord of the Rings films. And so you could read half the Bible in the time you watch The Hobbit. The genre of Kings, the kind of literature it is, is historical narrative. It's telling the story of Israel during this period of time, but in narrative form. It's, it's not just saying these are the dates and the facts and the people, but it's telling that in a, in a, 
in a memorable story form, a way that, that people would be able to remember. Like other books of historical narrative, there's not a lot in the way of instructive material. Do this, don't do that. But much with regard to God's character and how he deals with people. It's extremely helpful when studying kings to ask questions like these, and we've reviewed these uh, with almost every book of historical narrative in the Old Testament. But what is this text telling me about God and his character? Who is he? What is he like? What is it uh, the text revealed to me about God's relationship to Israel? Because uh, that is who God is relating to most primarily uh, in the book of Kings. But uh, we, we don't want to look at just how God deals with Israel, but how, how God might also be dealing with, with the church, with Christians today. What does this text reveal about how God uh, finally deals with people, with individuals, with me? Uh, what does this text uh, require and what I know about God and how he deals with people? What does it require of me to do in my life? First uh, Kings in outline goes through about five different movements. So there's five major sections. In chapters 1 through 11, you have the rise and the reign of Solomon. In chapters 12 through 14, you have the story of how the kingdom came to be divided. Uh, in chapters 15 and 16, you get a fairly quick succession of a number of different uh, kings that rise to the thrones of both the northern and southern kingdoms. And then in chapters 17 through 22, uh, we have a, a, a sex, uh, the, the section of the book that zeroes in on these two characters, Elijah and Ahab. Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom Israel. Elijah, that mighty prophet of God sent to call Ahab and the people to repentance, and we'll look at some of their interaction today. And then finally, we have the narrative in the last, uh, uh, last part of chapter 22 of Jehoshaphat, king of the southern kingdom, and Azariah, king of the northern kingdom, and kind of the state of the, of the divided kingdom before the beginning of the, the second volume of Kings. Tonight, as we look at Kings, we're, we're going to look at it in, in essentially, uh, two, with, with essentially an eye toward two terms, division and decline. I mean, if you're going to summarize First uh, Kings in two words, it's just, it, it, they are those two, division and decline. The kingdom divides, and then it goes downhill very quickly. And so we're just going to kind of trace that uh, in order as we work through the text tonight. We begin, and, and, and so does the book of 1 Kings, with Solomon's successes and his sins in chapters 1 through 11. 1 Kings begins with a foreshadowing tone. Those of you who have uh, paid attention in English class know what foreshadowing is. It's a, a, a statement uh, in literature or an event in literature that points to something else that is going to happen. Uh, that kind of gives you a hint as to what will take place down the road. And First Kings begins this way. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. The picture is this, as King starts, that King David, the man after God's own heart, is about to die. And the question that Israel and we, the readers of this history, are left with, are left asking is, who will be king? And will he live up to David? Will he, will he be like David before him? Who's going to take over the, the mantle of king of Israel? Who is going to uh, uh, rise to the fore to sit on the throne? Well, very quickly, David's next eldest son after Absalom, who was killed in 2 Samuel, you'll remember. David's next eldest son, Adonijah, begins to set himself up as heir to the throne. Uh, he is sort of... 
uh, the, the logical successor uh, being the next oldest, but, all, but, but not necessarily the, the definite uh, successor. Uh, Adonijah, in trying to set himself up to be the next king, aligns himself very quickly with David's uh, former <clears throat> army commander, Joab, with a priest named Abiathar, uh, thereby uh, consolidating power for himself. He even becomes friends with a man named Shimei, who was a descendant uh, of the house of Saul. Who He's the guy who cursed David as David was leaving the city of Jerusalem, uh, kicking rocks on him uh, when, when Absalom had kind of forced David out. And then as David returns... Uh, in power to retake the city. Shimei is the one who falls down on his face asking for mercy. Uh, He's kind of a a double-minded guy, and now he's aligned himself with Adonijah, David's next eldest son, uh, who's setting himself up as king. Concerned by all that is going on with Adonijah's consolidation of, of power and leadership around himself, Nathan the prophet, who previously uh, confronted David about his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet goes to Bathsheba, David's wife, to devise a plan to remind David that he had at one point said that Solomon, Bathsheba's second son, would be king after David had died. Their plan succeeds. They're able to remind David of the promise that he made, and David uh, will will declare that Solomon will be the next king. And so very quickly, almost almost under the shadow of night, Solomon is coronated while Adonijah is, is basically looking the other way. They kind of sneak around behind his back to make Solomon king very quickly. And as Solomon takes the throne, David instructs the young Solomon this way in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Again, foreshadowing should tell us that if David must warn Solomon how to act as king, that perhaps Solomon may not actually fulfill his father's instructions. Well, after David's death, Solomon goes about consolidating power for himself. And in chapter 2, a friend of Solomon's, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who is sort of Solomon's personal enforcer, uh, an Old Testament professor of mine called him Benny the Knife. Uh, uh, Benaiah is the guy who goes out and kills all the people that Solomon doesn't want around anymore. Uh, so in chapter 2, in, in very quick fashion, Benny the Knife puts down Adonijah, right? Solomon's half-brother and uh, the previous uh, supposed successor to the throne. He kills Joab, uh, David's former uh, army commander and new, newfound friend of Adonijah. And he kills Shimei, the descendant of Saul, who mocked David as he fled from Absalom. So all at once, Solomon is king. He's consolidated power. There are no threats to his reign. But we read in chapter 3, verse 1, these words. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Aligning himself in the kingdom of Israel with Egypt 
uh, here at the beginning of chapter 3 is as sketchy as it sounds. Solomon is, in his own mind, forming a political alliance with a powerhouse of a nation. But he's also aligning himself with Israel's former slaveholders. It's a move that lets us know that things may not go as well as the people of Israel had hoped for, as well as Solomon had hoped for, as well as God has intended for his people. Chapter 3 will then go on to tell us about Solomon's request for wisdom and God's generous and glad response to that. So Solomon is a guy who, who makes some mistakes but, but also asks God for the right things. There's even a, a story told about how Solomon wisely found justice for a defrauded mother whose baby had been stolen. In his wisdom and with the blessing of God, uh, Solomon will take seven years to build the temple that his father had hoped to build, the temple to the Lord, opulent and ornate, a, a wonder of the ancient world. And then he would take 13 years after that to build his own palace right next to the temple and equally ornate. I don't know if there's a whole lot to that, but it's certainly worth thinking about that Solomon took seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build his own house. After dedicating the temple with uh, great and, and numerous sacrifices, Solomon receives a word from the Lord, a, a, a word of confirmation, but also of warning. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 3, <clears throat> 3 through 9, we read this. The Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but you go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel be will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus uh, to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Now, by the beginning of chapter 11... Solomon would find himself with many foreign wives from all of the surrounding pagan peoples, disobeying the command of God from Exodus 34, 16, against intermarriage with pagan peoples. And we read in 1 Kings 11, verses 2 through 4, these verses, these words. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Uh, Solomon married them. He clung to these in love. Verse 3 says he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God 
as was the heart of David, his father. We read that he went after, the Ash, uh, went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. He chased after all of these other gods. He built a sacrificing place for Chemosh, the, the, the false god of Moab, and Molech, the false god of the Ammonites. After marrying these many women and incorporating the worship of their false gods into the life of the people of Israel, very quickly thereafter, Solomon will be dead and the kingdom will be in peril. Which leads us to the first point of application or thing that, that, that we ought to, to learn from, from the text at this point, And that is this, that patterns of sin start in even the godliest of people. By all accounts, Solomon began well. Chapter 2 says that Solomon loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. He kept his statutes. But wealth and passion and women took Solomon's heart astray and down a path of repeated sin against God. Friends, let Solomon's life be a warning and a caution to us that we watch our lives carefully. Sin is always lurking, even for the godliest of people. And as long as we strive against our fleshly nature, we will be tempted to sin. So never assume that you are too holy to repent. Never assume that you are so obedient that you need not watch your life. Without even knowing it, if you are not careful, you, I, like Solomon, can throw our lives with God away following the things that this world stands to offer. Following the the passions of our own uh, fleshly bodies. Following after the sin and temptation that fights for our attention at all time. Solomon's reign begins successfully, but he uh, fails very quickly. And after his death, we move to the next sort of movement of First Kings, which is division and decline. After Solomon's death, his son, Rehoboam, who is young and impetuous, listens to some bad advice from some friends. Now, he got advice, some good advice from some older men in the kingdom who said, Hey, listen, what you ought to do is go to the people, be kind to them, deal, deal wisely and, and, uh, and generously with them, and you'll have the people's hearts as long as you are king. And then he turned to some younger friends of his and says, well, what do you guys think? How should I go about being king? And they give him this advice in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. This is to Solomon's son. The young man who had grown up with Rehoboam said to him, thus you shall speak to the people who said to you, uh, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. You thought my dad was tough. You ain't seen nothing yet. Rehoboam, for some reason, is persuaded by the advice of his friends. And he says to the people just that. And among those who stood before Rehoboam to hear this posturing message was a a man named Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Hard, uh, it's kind of hard to keep these two guys straight, but uh, Rehoboam, remember, is the son of Solomon. Jeroboam is the son of a, uh, of a widow and uh, the, the previous taskmaster of Solomon's forced labor force. Uh, He was commander of a a group that Solomon had put in charge of repairing the wall around Jerusalem. Uh, Jeroboam had been told by a prophet earlier in chapter 11 that he would receive rule over 10 of the tribes of Israel after Solomon's death. 
Well, after Rehoboam's failure to lead or failure of leadership, Jeroboam leads 10 of the tribes to split off and to form the northern kingdom of Israel. While Rehoboam, Solomon's son, will remain as king over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was. Now, one kingdom under Saul, what was one kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon has now all of a sudden become two. It's been divided in half because of the foolishness of one man and the rebellion of another. The foolishness of Rehoboam to not know how to lead well and not to heed good advice. And the rebellion of Jeroboam who led ten tribes to, to break away from the rest of, of Judah and form another kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel will never have a good king. Uh, If you're a fan of mnemonic devices, just remember that northern kingdom never has a good king. So, NK, northern kingdom, never a good king. NK, right? I don't know if that's a good mnemonic device or not, but it works for me. The northern kingdom never has a good king. They're all horrible. And the pattern starts with Jeroboam, this rebel against Rehoboam. We read in in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 26 through 31. Jeroboam said in his heart, now that he is uh, uh, ruling over the northern kingdom, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king, so Jeroboam, took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. You know where this is going. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Jeroboam's pattern will be repeated. Pattern of idolatry, pattern of perverted worship of God will be repeated by every single king of the northern kingdom Israel. With each one getting more, uh, getting progressively worse so that the last one is worse than the first. Jeroboam will be followed by his son Nadab as king. Nadab will be assassinated by a man named Basha. Basha uh, will succeed him as king. And then Elah, uh, Basha's son, will, will succeed him. But then Zimri, another man, will assassinate Elah. He'll rule for one week and then be assassinated by a man named Omri. Each of these kings of, of each of these kings of Israel, it is said in some way, shape, or form, beginning in chapter 15, verse 34. This man did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam. He followed the pattern of perverted worship and idolatry of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Of Omri, it is said that in 1 Kings 16, 25, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. When Omri dies, his son Ahab, who will be uh, an infamous character in the course of Kings, Ahab will take the throne. And of him, the writer of Kings says in 1 Kings 16.30, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Leads us to see and to learn that patterns of sin lead to destruction. 
Patterns of sin start even in the godliest of people, we learn from Solomon's life, and patterns of sin lead to destruction. In just over 50 years, the northern kingdom of Israel will have seven kings, three of them being assassinated, all of them following the idolatrous practices of Jeroboam with increasing sinfulness. And we'll see in Second Kings that the northern kingdom will be the first to fall to a foreign power. The destruction that will come about will come from the hand of God, the author of Kings will tell us. Remember God's warning to Solomon that if he or his sons should turn away and worship other gods, that he would remove them from the land he promised. Friends, as we look at our own lives, do we see patterns of unrepentant sin? If so, turn now in repentance and seek God's mercy. It's never too late. It is never too early to repent. Repentance is always timely. And so if there's a pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, learn from the disastrous effects of of a pattern of sin that we see in Kings and repent today. You need not live a life of destruction. You need not see your life come to ruin because of sin. Instead, turn to God and be healed. Division and decline continues into the next portion, the next movement of kings, where we see Elijah's miraculous ministry. Elijah is this sort of ray of hope and, and, uh, uh, and joy, sort of, in the middle of kings. He, he leads us to, to think that maybe things will not be quite so bad, or even in the midst of all the darkness taking place. Uh, Elijah is here, and he's a man of God who is living with integrity and doing what God has commanded him to do. Chapters 17 through 19 of Kings detail the life and the reign of Ahab, that uh, last king that, 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 will be, uh, that was mentioned just previous in that long succession or quick succession of kings. Uh, and Ahab, uh, 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 these chapters detail uh, Elijah's uh, interaction with Ahab and especially uh, uh, the, the call to repentance that Elijah gives to Ahab regularly. In chapter 17 alone, Elijah will uh, demonstrate or we'll see in Elijah's life the miraculous power of God just on him in every way. In chapter 17 alone, Elijah will prophesy a drought in Israel. He'll have to flee for his life from Ahab after prophesying that drought. He'll find shelter with a widow and her son where God will sustain them all on a tiny bit of oil and flour for many days. When that same widow's son dies of a severe illness, Elijah will raise him from the dead by the power of God. In chapter 18, he confronts the idolatrous Ahab, calling him to uh, uh, gather the prophets of Baal for an epic showdown. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture, and I want to read it for us. This is 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 40. Elijah goes to Ahab. He says, call all the prophets of Baal. This is in the middle of the drought. And, uh, and we're going to have a, a little bit of a divine showdown. We're going to see whose God shows up. So we read in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull and I'll lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. 
And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, shout louder, prophets of Baal, for he's a god. Either he's, he's musing or, or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Joab, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Remember, they're in the middle of a drought. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. Elijah's ministry is empowered by God in unique ways to make a clear point to a wicked king at a crucial time. The point is this. There is no God like the Lord. So repent and do righteousness. In light of Elijah's miraculous ministry and his constant call to repentance to Ahab, know this, that God constantly calls sinners to repentance. God constantly calls sinners to repentance. That's on display for us in clear ways here in Kings. Though the wickedness of Ahab and the other kings of Israel rose high, the Lord never quit calling those kings to repentance. Though they did not deserve grace, they did not deserve even the gracious offer to repent, God gives it still. And he gives it in dramatic and compelling ways through his servant Elijah. The deep sadness of Ahab's life is that though he has this prophet Elijah to warn him, he has the wonders of God to validate the warning, Ahab does not listen. Like Pharaoh of Egypt, he hardens his heart listening to his pagan wife Jezebel, who was full of bloodlust for the death of God's prophets. Ahab is a tragic character. But friends, we need not be like him. 
If your life, if your conscience is troubled by your sin, repent, turn from it, and seek God's favor. In truth, there is nothing that you may do on your own or in your own efforts to please God enough to overlook your sin. God has sent his son Jesus, however, God in flesh, who lived some 2,000 years ago without sin. He died on a cross to endure the just anger that God has against our sin, and he did it in our place, in your place, and in mine. Jesus, the promised Savior of Israel and of the nations, rose from the dead to prove his victory over sin and death and to demonstrate his divine power over all the universe. The Bible teaches us that there is forgiveness for even your most heinous sins and for your worst idolatry if only you'll turn from yourself and from your sin to give your life in trust and obedience to Jesus who died for you. Repentance, friends, is a wonderful thing. Christians should love repenting. It is full of joy and freedom from sin found in obedience to Christ. Maybe, though, you're waiting, on a, you're waiting for a, a miracle worker like Elijah to convince you of God's word. Maybe you're waiting for a word from heaven, a, a, a loud, a, a flashing sign from God to, to call you to repent. But all you have is a small pool and a tiny whisper in your heart saying, repent today. Friends, if all you have is a small whisper calling you to repentance, do not despise it. Elijah himself, after defeating the prophets of Baal and bringing rain upon the land after a long drought, flees to a cave uh, uh, awaiting the deliverance of God from those who sought his life. And there, in that cave, Elijah, as he's praying to God, experiences several dramatic natural events. He experiences a strong wind, a wind that breaks rocks in in half. He experiences an earthquake that shakes the ground on which he's standing, a raging fire about him, none of which, though, have the voice of God in them. Then after all those things pass, he hears a low whisper, a quiet calling of the Lord. And it's in that quiet calling of the Lord that he hears God's voice. Christian, know that often God calls with a whisper and not with a bang. So listen to the whisper of God. Listen to the quiet, calm, beckoning call to repentance and trust in Christ day after day that God gives to you through his Holy Spirit. As Kings winds down, we see a preview of coming attractions. The last couple of chapters sets the tone for what we'll see in the second volume of this history. The final chapters of 1 Kings tell us more about Ahab, this wicked king. We learn that he twice defeats Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, even releasing him as a prisoner of war. And he later throws a tantrum, Ahab, like a four-year-old not getting to have candy after dinner, uh, over not being able to get a vineyard that he wants. He, He sees this vineyard that's just really pleasing to him. He wants it really bad. The guy who owns it won't sell it to him. So he throws a fit. And so Jezebel, his wife, has the vineyard owner falsely accused of blasphemy and stoned to death, and his vineyard is taken and given to Ahab. And when confronted by this sin, this wicked sin of stealing this, this vineyard from this man after having him killed, after being confronted uh, by a prophet, Ahab will repent in sackcloth and ashes. He'll ask God for mercy. But Ahab will not go on long as king after this point. So long had been his pattern of disobedience and sin. 
Ahab will very quickly make a treaty with the good king of Judah in the south, a man named Jehoshaphat. The two will go to battle together against Syria, this foreign enemy. And in that battle, Ahab will disguise himself to look like a common soldier while telling Jehoshaphat to wear his royal robes to battle. This ploy is to protect himself by setting Jehoshaphat as the visible figurehead, thinking that if the Syrians are going to come after anyone, they're going to go after him and not me. In the course of battle, Jehoshaphat will be sort of miraculously saved. The Syrians will fall in on him, thinking he's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then as they fall in on him, they find out he's not uh, Ahab, that he's Jehoshaphat. And they, and they fall away. They leave him alone. Meanwhile, a random soldier pulls back an arrow in his bow and lets it go. And it happens to strike unaimed. Ahab in the smallest place between the breastplate and the chainmail of his armor, and he bleeds out in his chariot. We learn this as we close Kings, and this is the sort of preview of coming attractions for what will happen in Second Kings. We get a word about Jehoshaphat and who he will be as king, and we get a word about uh, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, who will follow him as king. In 1 Kings 22, 43, or 41 and 43, we read this. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of, of Shilhi. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. That was Ahab. So we learn that Jehoshaphat will be a decent king, but he'll still allow this kind of perverted or, or, or unauthorized form of worship to God at these high places. And we learn this about Ahaziah in chapter 22, 51 through 53. And 1 Kings ends this way. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. As First Kings closes, we learn and see that long-standing patterns of sin are very difficult to break. Even after his repentance, Ahab has a difficult time dealing in honesty and righteousness. The pattern of sinfulness in the kings of Israel ran deep, and his son Ahaziah would do the same thing that his father Ahab had done. The course for Israel at this point has been set. They will, the northern kingdom, will wither away in their idolatry and sin. And so for the southern kingdom as well. Though Jehoshaphat was better far than Ahab, he still allowed this perverted, unauthorized worship of God. And in time, as we'll see through the second volume of this book next time, both kingdoms will fall at the discipline of the Lord, demonstrating that long patterns of sin get harder to break the longer they are entertained. Friends, if there's a long pattern of sin in your life, begin a fresh season of repentance today. 
Seek God's help by faith in Christ to turn from your sin before God removes his hand to let you go the way of your own destruction. If there's repentance that needs to be had, have it today. Repent today. Learn from the destructive pattern of sin that we see in the kings of Israel and of Judah here in this book. Now, so that we don't leave 1 Kings on a totally depressing note, even though the author of 1 Kings leaves us on a rather depressing note, I want to lead us to see Christ in 1 Kings. That's the point of this sermon series that, that we do to learn to read the Bible in light of the one character who sits right at the center of it, of, of Jesus himself. And, and here in this, we'll have some encouragement, I think. We see at least three things related to Christ, um, uh, things that, things, three things that we learn uh, about Christ or, or are persuaded to look forward to in Christ from this book tonight. First is this, that Jesus is the prophet greater than Elijah. Elijah's ministry, friends, is amazing. As you go back and read through Kings, you will be amazed. But Christ's ministry is even more amazing. As one who spoke the words of God to the people, Jesus also miraculously fed thousands and raised the dead and calmed the storms and walked on water. Elijah will, in 2 Kings, escape death by being swept up in a whirlwind of fire, but Jesus will defeat death being raised by his own authority on the third day. Jesus, the greater prophet, speaks a similar word of repentance to, uh, to, to the world that Elijah did. In the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read this. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message is repent and believe, repent and have faith, turn from your sin and turn to God. A message just like that of what Elijah had been saying to Ahab. Jesus, the prophet who's greater than Elijah, is, is not just one who delivers God's word, but he is the one who speaks the word of God. He is God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 begins this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets like Elijah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the prophet. He's the one who speaks the word of God, who's greater than Elijah, both in the, the miracles he performs and in the authority of his word. We learn also that Jesus is the priest who offers right sacrifices. Did you notice that we heard really very little about the priests at all of Israel in Kings? Hardly a word spoken. But they're there, they're in the background, they're helping the people to offer sacrifices to God, contrary to the instruction that God had given for their worship. There are priests that are appointed by Jeroboam who are not from the tribe of Levites. The priests are spectacularly silent, however, in Kings, and they are spectacularly silent failures in the book of Kings. But not Jesus. The Son of God is zealous for right worship of God. So much so that he drives those who would pervert the worship of God out of the temple in his day. 
In John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we see the righteous priest Jesus cleansing the worship of God. We read this. In the temple, Jesus found there those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. I love this about Jesus. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus, the priest who offers right sacrifices, makes an appearance or or, or we get greater detail about who he is as a priest in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Where the author of Hebrews says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace through the mediating work of this high priest that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is a prophet greater than Elijah. He's a priest who offers right sacrifices. And Jesus is the king, the son of David, who does not fail. Solomon's failure and and the subsequent division and disobedience of the people of Israel leaves us, as we read 1 Kings, longing for a king who will not fail. We want a king after God's own heart like David. But, But even more so, we want a king with a heart like David, but without the sin that David has. In his death, Jesus is ironically mocked by those who are around him as the king of the Jews. But when he returns, when Christ returns at the end of the age to make all things right, his full glory will be revealed and his identity uh, as the righteous and sinless king of kings will be made known to all. Hear these verses from Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. John relates to us what he sees in that vision. Then I saw heaven opened, he said, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the Son of David, the King of Israel, the Son of God who does not fail. So as you read Kings and you see all of these spectacular failures in Kings, look forward to Christ who does not fail in any of these roles. He is the greater prophet. He is the perfect priest. He is the sinless King. Look to Jesus as Lord, as King of your life and turn from sin to be found securely in his hands. Let me pray for us and After I pray, I'd like to stay and ask a couple of questions about kings. I would love to try to answer them. Let's pray together.